Welcome to Politics and Reform, where we'll be talking about a variety of topics pertaining to criminal justice reform, police brutality, systemic racism, and issues within our regional communities. We are here to talk and inform not only ourselves, but our audience with the opinions and critiques of those individuals that practice in these fields. Today, we're here with Sophia Elijah, a criminal defense attorney, a former deputy director at the Criminal Justice Center at Harvard Law School, the executive director of Alliance of Families for Justice, and the first African-American woman to lead the Correctional Association of New York. Sophia, it's great to talk with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Right. Uh, and, and how are you doing um, in this <laughs> global pandemic? Well, it's a very difficult situation, as I'm sure it is um, for everyone. As you know, I'm located in New York, and New York was the epicenter for COVID-19. Right. And the state was uh, devastated. I've lost many people close to me, including my older sister, as a result of the pandemic. Wow, wow. I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, and, you know, the, the same thing on my side of the family. But, uh, you know, without, without further ado, I say we get started with the first question. Um, so uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, um, your professorship, your activism, and, and the organizations you lead. You know, what inspired you to dedicate your life to justice and advocacy? I was inspired to dedicate my life to justice and advocacy because through my lens, there was no other choice. I am a child of the 60s. My entire life, people who look like me have been lynched in this country, have been oppressed because of the color of their skin, and have been denied equal access to opportunity and never had a chance to fully realize their dreams. So every opportunity that I received educationally or career-wise seemed to me I was obligated um, to use those opportunities to improve the plight of my people and all people who are oppressed in this country. Right, yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've heard the stories of the 60s, you know, I've read about all the, all the history I can. And well, I guess I'll say that we're, we're in this like insurgent period, even right now in the midst of a global pandemic and, and you know, recently, and so I, I think this is, this is also a great time to talk about justice and advocacy. Um, but, but moving on, you are the director of Alliance of Families for Justice, which is a nonprofit devoted to providing counseling and, and free support to those family members um, in prison. Uh, you know, what, what sparked your interest in helping these family members of incarcerated individuals? And, and do you believe that programs like this should be permanently institutionalized within prison systems? Well, let me take the first part of, of your question. What inspired me to found Alliance of Families for Justice? The organization is structured around the needs and concerns of families who are directly impacted by the criminal injustice system and people who have a criminal record. Right. Our board of directors and our staff are all comprised of people who've had that lived experience. Mm -hmm. And our mission is to support, empower, and mobilize families who have incarcerated loved ones and people with a criminal record. And the goal is not just to provide service, although that's where we start, that's the support part, but to provide family members with the tools so that they can transform their pain into power. 
It is a very devastating and traumatic experience to have someone you love go to prison. Not only does the person who is sentenced do the time, but the people who love them who are back home do that time along with them. The stigma that the society visits upon people who have incarcerated loved ones is overwhelming. People are living with a sense of shame, don't tell neighbors, coworkers, et cetera. And so the Alliance of Families for Justice creates a safe space where people can talk about that pain, unload it, and now start to get a sense of the ability to do something about it. So they no longer feel impotent, omnipotent. Right. And so why, why don't more, more programs like this exist within prison systems? You know, should they be? Should they be permanently institutionalized? Well, a great, great question. So first right. of all, Alliance of Families for Justice is not part of the prison system at all. Right. We receive no government money. We don't seek any government money. We're not a program funded by the state or by the prison system or by the city. We're completely independent. Right. And we want to keep it that way because our family members not only are concerned about the conditions under which their loved ones exist, but they're concerned about changing the systems that are responsible for the oppression that they and their loved ones experience. Certainly we would not be effective if our ability to function was dependent on government dollars because we're criticizing the government. So we do feel that it would be important for an organization that does what Alliance of Families for Justice does to exist in every state because every state in this country is suffering from these same problems. But we don't feel that we should be, say, a government-funded entity. The importance of being independent and being able to speak truth to power when that needs to happen um, can't be compromised. I see. And, and, you know, going on this topic of, of mass incarceration, in a, in a recent interview, you described the American prison system as, quote, weapons of mass destruction, which is analogous to, of course, uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and on this topic of, of prison, you know, prison systems, do you believe in prison reform or prison abolition, as there is widespread debate about this? And, and if so, what are the alternatives to incarceration, especially with the mass incarceration problem, which is rooted in systemic racism and low socioeconomic class? Well, let's start with the, the issue about weapons of mass destruction. Right. I use that term very intentionally because mm-hmm. in the communities where I live and work and grew up, that's exactly what the criminal injustice system resulted in. It destroyed those communities in the same way nuclear weapons destroy communities, not with the the bombshells and the smoke perhaps, but the the carnage and the the loss of hope and the destruction, fairly similar. And so that's why I think it was appropriate to refer to mass incarceration as a weapon of mass destruction, particularly in black and brown and poor communities in this country. Now you asked me whether or not I believe in prison reform or prison abolition. Right. So prison reform is a convenient term to use when talking about trying to bring about change and tinkering around the edges. Mm -hmm. And certainly it's important, particularly for the people who are locked up in these cages to address the the quality of life, quote unquote, that they um, have to live with 
day in and day out. But I also believe very firmly that it's not possible to reform this system, that you can't reform prisons any more than you could reform slavery. Prisons are designed to destroy people and create an economic base for other people. So there's in similar ways that slavery was. And so that is not something that can be reformed. While building a movement to completely abolish prisons, we can't ignore the reality of the day-to-day -day existence of the people who are incarcerated. And right. so I think that the two are not mutually exclusive, that it's important to fight for reforms while understanding that the ultimate goal is abolition. I see. And, and so, you know, recently, like I said, there, there were protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, and there was an entire like perceptive or cognizant movement within the global pandemic, which I have never seen. I'm sure many people have never seen. Um, but how do we as people um, or activists or lawyers in your case uh, continue to search for justice and ultimately transcend it? You know, what advice would you give to those individuals looking to change the norm and, and fight for prison reform leading to prison abolition? Well, I would say if you want to bring about systemic change, right. you have to think outside of the box. You have to recognize that no matter how creative or radical or um, visionary you perceive yourself to be, your vision is still shaped by the reality of your lived experience, which is for most of the activists in this country, shaped by living in America. Right. A system that is capitalist, a system that is built on someone having less and someone having more. It's built on the 1%. Yeah. It's built on racism, sexism, homophobia, and all the other isms and obias that we want to get rid of. That's a pretty right. long list. So when you think about that, it is hard to imagine that suddenly you're not breathing the same air that everybody else is breathing that is unhealthy. So right. if you really want to bring about fundamental change, you have to explore systems and ideas that weren't birthed here. Right. That's what I would suggest to people, to be willing to think outside the box and explore more than what exists between the Atlantic and the Pacific and the stolen land between Canada and Mexico. Right. And so does that mean kind of exploring in other countries per se, uh, or kind of just creating a new idea that's never been thought of, like a revolutionary idea? Some of all of the above. <laughs> yeah. the above. There's right. no, I can't give you like a cookie cutter response because we're not in a cookie cutter situation. In history. Right, right, right. We are in a period in history where there's room to uproot a lot of what has been considered the foundation of this country and the, the norms and the accepted um, repression that has existed. So if you want to fundamentally change those things, you have to be willing mm -hmm. and dare to think of something that some might say is absolutely loony or crazy or can't work. But I like to say that the, the things that were considered to be crazy and very radical 30 and 40 years ago 
Right. I consider the norm and highly accepted now. Right. And a very easy example is if you, people say now, quote unquote, the Black Lives Matter movement has really taken off and people are in the streets. I remember lying down on 125th Street and Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard in the face of a Black Lives Matter protest several years ago. Right. At that time, people thought we lying down in the street were absolutely out of our minds. Now, people out in the street and you've got, you've got signs every place saying Black Lives Matter. Right. Well, while some few years ago, you had people in positions of power saying that it was a terrorist plot. Right, and some, some politicians still do. Exactly. So that, yeah. that tells us how out of step they are. There was a time when people who fought to end slavery were being lynched, strung up, and chased out of town. Right. It's, it's an unfortunate world we live in, but you know, there, there are people out there working day and night, just like yourself, to make sure, you know, families' lives are better. And for that, we thank you, you know, and hopefully maybe, you know, I'll enter that field as well. Um, but, but kind hurry of- up. Hurry up so I can retire. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm only 16. I, I, I've, I still have two years left to vote. So okay. think, about, think about that. Uh, but, but kind of moving on, in, in a political spectrum, um, you know, I often advocate for clean money candidates, um, you know, PAC money, special interest money, and on a local level, developer money, you know, they riddle candidates and they corrupt votes. And I've seen that in my own city, and I've seen that on a national scale. Um, and, and in terms of the prison industrial complex, which is something you've talked about, um, you know, consistently, why is it that money is the sole factor that controls incarceration? And, and how do we kind of, like we like to say in politics, create like a clean money prison system, or in our case, reform it to lead to abolition? Well, let's, let's start with, you know, prisons don't exist in a vacuum. Right. So the fact that money is attached to prisons is really a manifestation of the fact that money runs this country. We're in a capitalist society, right? So <laughs> right. prisons are designed, and in, in many parts of this country, the existence of a prison in a particular area, it's there because it's the sole economic foundation for the residents of the local community. And that local community feeds its family on the misery of the people who are incarcerated there, who usually live hundreds of miles away. Certainly that is the reality in New York State. The overwhelming majority of the people who are incarcerated here come from New York City, and they're incarcerated in 53 facilities, the majority of which are hundreds of miles away, scattered in upstate New York. Part of the reason that happened is because the agricultural industry was devastated when it was, when it was privatized and went corporate several decades ago. Mm -hmm. And that took away the economic underpinnings for many of those communities. And elected officials in those communities then lobbied to the um, legislature in New York State, and I'm sure this thing has happened in many other places, to build prisons in their counties so that there would be some economic base. And so instead of doing real economic development for those areas, they simply built prisons. I see. And, and so prisons have become like an economic vantage point 
I'd say for, for some, for some cities. Absolutely. And so how do we get, how do we abolish the prison industrial complex without, well, pissing off a lot of people? Well, I've I've never been a stranger or upset about pissing off a lot of people. That's kind of my work. But (laughs) I would say this, in order for us as a country, as a society to abolish prisons, we first have to deal with the fact that America has an addiction problem, a serious addiction problem. I agree. That addiction is to punishment. We function under this false belief that punishing people is what is going to make things better. It's going to change their behavior. It's interesting because we're very comfortable with a white dominated society to embrace punishment as long as the recipients of that punishment are black and brown and poor people. Okay. But now if you switch to all of the child psychology um, experts, they will tell you, Oh, the way you change children's behavior, you don't spank. Right. You don't punish. You use positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is like the law of the land until you talk to talk about black and brown people. Salute. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I would, I would suggest that the very first thing that we have to do if we're going to abolish prisons is we have to come to grips with our hypocrisy and our addiction to punishment and what underlies that hypocrisy and that addiction to punishment. Because I can assure you, if the demographics of who is in prison and right. who is in this country was to flip tomorrow, right. abolition would be done in about a week. Yeah, I, I believe you. Um, you actually bring up an interesting subject of, of addiction. Um, there's, there's an author I really like to read. Uh, his name is David Foster Wallace. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he talks about the addiction or in a sense, the religious devotion of the American capitalistic system. And not only do I see an addiction with uh, consumerism, mass consumerism, mass marketing, mass entertainment, but I guess in this case, we're seeing an addiction of systemic racism and a kind of hierarchical society which marks certain communities at the bottom and so hypothetically if let's say you had the power because you just brought it up let's say you know the real abolitionists were the politicians that we needed if you had the power to change any law any procedure any rule like you had god's hand in regarding criminal justice reform, you know, what would you do? What key areas would you focus on and, and why? Well, if I had God's hand, I'd flee the country. And that would probably be okay. All right. But um, before I talk about what would happen if I had God's hand, and I don't know, can you still hear me? You yes, hear I can still hear you. I can still hear you. Yeah. Before I talk about if I had God's hand, I want to circle back to questions you asked me before about money and politics, because I think right. that's important. I don't want to ignore that. Right. I think it's a very fundamental thing that we need to do is we need to take money out of politics. That is correct. So there should be like, there should be an equal playing field for people to campaign. Yes. Should not be tied to how much money you have. Okay. So that we're not making choices between billionaires. All right. The person who was working a minimum wage job could be just as equally or more equally qualified to run the country as the person who's a billionaire. 
Right. right. We know for sure, if we've learned nothing else from the past four years, intellect has nothing to do with whether or not you get the vote. Right. <laughs> I'll leave that there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so I would I would say a fundamental thing that needs to needs to change in this country is taking money out of politics altogether. Okay. So yeah. tax, etc. Be, be gone. Now, to your, your last question to me about if I had God's hand, what would I change? Right. I w- wouldn't probably start with the criminal justice system. I probably would start with the basic um, tenets of equality for everyone. And to fundamentally restructure our society so that everyone has an equal opportunity for their dreams to come true. Because if you look at every aspect of unfairness and inequality in this country, it's tied to the fact that people don't have equal opportunities for their dreams to come true. I can assure you that more than 85% of the people who are incarcerated wouldn't be there if they had the same opportunity for their dreams to come true as the people who are working on Wall Street. So that's where I would start. I would also um, fundamentally change how we think of creating employment. It's not the case that we have to have unemployment in this country. One of the, the main factor, the only factor actually that has been tied directly to an increase or decrease in the crime rate is the unemployment rate. Right. Okay. So if people have jobs and they feel that they can have a meaningful living, then the likelihood that their lives are going to intersect with the criminal justice system is very, very low. We also need to fundamentally stop pretending that mental health issues are not a real factor in society. Right. And we need to create quality care for people who are in need of mental health services. Yes. Yeah. Minus the stigma, minus the ignorance that goes into the provision of those services where someone has to be able to function as if they have an, um, a PhD and a tenured professor at an Ivy League institution in order to navigate the bureaucracy to get the basic care that they need for their mental health services. If we could address some of those basic things, we would already turn the tide fundamentally in this country. Another thing that I would seriously urge we need to do is radically change our foreign policy. Mm -hmm. We need to stop pretending we're the biggest and the baddest and the smartest because we're the stupidest (laughs) <laughs> and on incarcerating and putting people in cages. So it's more than time for us to eat humble pie. And since America is such a very young country, start to learn from some of the countries that have been around a lot longer and who treat their people as if they're the most important and valued natural resource that the country has. Right, right, right. That certainly isn't the way that America treats its citizens and residents. Right. I, I, I completely agree. I think we need to be internationalists. I don't think we need to be a self-proclaimed global superpower, you know, and I definitely think there needs to be some reallocations in, in government spending, um, and especially on a local level uh, as well. And, and I noticed that, you know, each question I asked, you, you kind of use a consistent word of radical. Um, and nowadays, you know, we see politicians, we see activists, and a lot of critics like to use their tactics and say it, it's radicalism, it's too radical, or it's socialist. Um, yeah. you know, do, do you agree with this statement? And, and is radicalism the answer to reforming the criminal justice system? You know, what merits a, a true systemic change in, in the corrupt American justice system? So, you know, I learned a long time ago 
that before I feel I need to react to the critic, mm -hmm. let's examine the critic. Okay. Right. So the people who are saying that calls for abolition, defunding the police, mm -hmm. eradicating systemic racism in this country, that those are radical beliefs. I question whether or not they're running around calling the activists in the Boston Tea Party radical. Mm -hmm. I suspect that they haven't decided to label those folks as radicals, but yet they, the actions taken by the people who participate in the Boston Tea Party are no less radical, and some might argue far more radical than anything that's happening today yes. in the streets of America. True. So it's convenient to put labels on people when you want to denigrate them and you want to continue their oppression. So anyone who wants to call the, the actions and the narratives uh, that are calling for systemic change and eradicating racism and mm -hmm. building for equality and equal opportunities for everybody, anyone who wants to call that radical, I consider that a blessing. And um, when I come into power, they can be the first to leave. <laughs> I, I, I wish you the best in coming into power. I'll, I'll definitely vote for that. Um, it, was, it was actually, um, I read a long time ago that the American Revolution, the British actually, because they were in power, right? They're the British Empire. Um, they dubbed the, the American revolutionaries terrorists. They were considered terrorists, the sons of liberty, the daughters of liberty. They were considered terrorists. Like you're going around and you're and you're dropping hundreds of teas and on chests and in the water and killing and tarring and feathering people. Like that was pretty radical at the time. And look what created. We created a democracy. We created a constitution. But again, that was 200 years ago. And well, more than 200 years ago. And if you think about this. Um, there was a guy in 1492 yes. who visited a whole lot of terrorism on the people who lived on this land. Yes, his name was Christopher Columbus. <laughs> and there were a bunch of people who were terrorists who went across the, um, went south, should I say, from Europe to the continent of Africa and robbed that continent of millions of its brightest and strongest people. That I think could fairly be labeled as terrorism. So as I said earlier, the people who are the critics, I always first examine the critics before I examine right. the criticism. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I agree. We're, we're all rooting for you. Um, and, and, you know, we're blessed to have such great individuals working on, you know, both sides of the country. Uh, me, of course, I still have my entire life ahead of myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors and you know thank you for talking with me and and you know blessing kind of the next the next steps for our, for our revolution okay well thank you for having me it was a pleasure